Hey everyone, welcome to the Practical Priesthood Podcast. We understand that every baptized believer is in the priesthood. The Practical Priesthood Podcast is here to inspire you, to inform you, and illuminate you through the lenses of scripture, theology, tradition, experience, and even reason as you live out your everyday life. 1 Peter 2, 4-5 says, Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Have you ever found yourself stumbling over tradition? Maybe you're confused about what tradition is and how it applies to your life. Or maybe you can't stand tradition because of the harm that sometimes comes from it. In this episode of Practical Priesthood Podcast, we're going to explore tradition and discuss how it can be used as a lens and a tool for growth. Hey everyone, welcome to this third episode of the Practical Priesthood Podcast where we're talking about tradition. Uh, and sometimes that's a, a bit of a red flag for people, but I think this is going to be a really good episode. I think you're going to enjoy it. I think so too. It's uh, sometimes the red flag if you say that word tradition, mm-hmm. and it kind of gives the heebie-jeebies to some people. So I'm pretty excited to be here and talking about this today. Yeah, we're definitely we're definitely in a time right now and in a, in a culture where tradition is bad. It's often seen seen as bad, but I I think as after we discuss this, we're going to learn that tradition isn't exactly what we think it is. And that there is good that comes out of tradition, but um, this is part of the the um, the trilogy that we're doing. We talked about last last time we got together, um, where we're calling it the lenses tradition. Uh, and so the reason for that is uh, in in our uh, in our theological realm uh, as Wesleyans, we uh, often refer back to John Wesley and something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral that we kind of use to talk about um, different things of theology and how to, kind of how to handle life, how to handle, you know, what God is saying to us and through us. And um, tradition's one of those pieces, right? We have scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. Uh, last week we talked, or I guess two weeks ago, we talked about scripture and how that is the most important one that we, yes. look, we look through. That's yes. the most important lens. Um, and the next three that we're doing, tradition, reason, experience, they don't really go in a particular order for any reason, um, but uh, we figured we'd give a little bit more space to tradition because there's a lot that goes along with this. Um, but we're going to talk about why tradition's important and how we can use tradition to kind of tackle some of these these um, modern-day issues that we're having and, and see where tradition plays a part in our lives. Yeah, and we did that first episode in the trilogy um, on scripture because of its preeminence. Its rank is number one. Mm-hmm. And we're using this image, this word picture of lens, because much like prescription glasses, it's a way in which we see and we interpret and it helps adjust our vision. So we're hoping that you can be okay with the glasses of tradition today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think a good place for us to start uh, is with Josh here. Um, Josh is gonna gonna read to us uh, something that the Book of Discipline says. Now, for for those of you listening who don't know what that is, in the in the United Methodist Church we have uh, the Book of Discipline, and that contains the statements of of our faith, um, our doctrines, our disciplines, um, 
how we function our church, all of it. Um, and, and sometimes they have some really good stuff in there about what we believe and why and what kind of led us to that part. So Josh, uh, why don't you go ahead and, and read that to us? Yeah, it says here that tradition is the history of that continuing environment of grace in and by which all Christians live, God's self-giving love in Jesus Christ. As such, tradition transcends the story of particular traditions. Right, and 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 what's really good is it is it goes on to say that Christianity does not leap from the New Testament times to the present, as though nothing were to be learned from the great cloud of witnesses in between. So yeah. that's kind of hinting at us. Yeah, what and we're that's what we're talking about. We're trying to start out with a good working definition of tradition, and one of the things I really enjoy about the Book of Discipline here is. When it says Christianity does not leap from the New Testament times to the present, Mm -hmm. as though there were nothing to be learned from the great cloud of witnesses, this is part of that foundational part of of getting a a definition of tradition, is that there's been this great amount of information, ritual, practice that's been passed on from New Testament times all the way up to today that has great value. And it's really cool how the Book of Discipline says the great cloud of witnesses mm-hmm. in between us, because yeah. even though those witnesses are gone, their their triumphs, their successes, and even some of their failures are really for us to learn from. Yeah. And and, and I think what's, what's really important here is it, it kind of alludes to what we should be seeing tradition as. I think oftentimes... When we're, if we're trying to define tradition, if we asked most people today, what is tradition? They would say it's that thing that we do over and over again. And most of the time it's well because no one knows why we're doing it. And that's why we, right. we just keep doing it. And in reality, as, as far as, the, as Christianity goes in, in our faith, tradition is less about the same, uh, you know, the same repetitions of the unknown and more about reliving what the cloud of witnesses has lived throughout the history of of our faith. So it, it so for me when I think about what is tradition, um, as far as the lenses go, I see it less as that modern uh, understanding and more as the history of our church. Yeah, and I think that dovetails right into the the next thing we want to bring into the layer of tradition as far as what we're saying we're defining it as. It says tradition in the Greek is paradosis. It can be used to denote everything that is handed down from the beginning in Christianity, including the gospel, doctrine, ethic, church order, and practice. In the church fathers, it characteristically denotes what is handed down from the apostles publicly. The term was sometimes used to denote an alternate source to scripture, but Virtually all sides recognize today that it is not the use of the early church. It simply did not set the two sources in opposition or contrast, as has sometimes been the case in specific periods of church history. Mm. So what we're trying to bring out here is that tradition is that which has been passed down to us that have been good and wholesome and healthy, including the things like the gospel. Someone started out orally or even written handing mm-hmm. down uh, what, what was inspired to them by the Holy Spirit. And then that turned into the teachings or the doctrines. And then we get things like ethics and church order and practice. And these church fathers were the ones that were close to the apostles. So in proximity, some of them were the disciples of the disciples. And so this is 
how they were getting that which was passed down from, say, John or Peter or James. And the church didn't set them as enemies one to another. Tradition becomes a servant to scripture in a lot of times, not only to interpret, but to help put it into practice. Yeah. And so that's one of the things we want to point out is that it's a part of the New Testament. It's a part of the early church fathers, and it really should be a part of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the 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 wording that that you pulled out from there that really stuck out to me was that it, it passing down, or another way of saying it, you know, um, the paradosis is is to um, to hand over, right, right. And it makes me think of uh, of of oh goodness, the um, the running event. Uh, with the baton, you, with the baton, yeah. where you have to—I don't know if there's—I'm sure there's an official name that I don't know what it mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that idea where you're you're running the race, right? You're running the good race for Christ, and you get to a point where you hand you hand it over to somebody else, and it makes me think in my head of 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 our faith, starting with 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 you know following Christ, starting with Christ, and Him passing these things over to his disciples and then them carrying those things throughout, you know, the beginning of the church, right? Starting the church, uh, you know, look at Paul's missionary journey throughout Acts and you see all these places he goes where he's, he's continually passing the baton to different people. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing is, is we're, we're still today through tradition of the church passing the baton that was that started with Christ. That's awesome. And I I think even as good dads, we do this in the natural right now when we are are trying to instill something of great value or importance mm-hmm. to our own children, we do that very passing on of the baton. I have seen that in my business. Mm-hmm. So my cleaning mentor, he would say, "Hey, this is the way we can run this weight uh, race cleaning-wise well." honoring God, and this is how you can do it. So let me show you. It becomes a I do, we do, and then you do. And he passes the baton on to me, and then all of a sudden I can keep carrying on. I could do good work under the glory of God. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's uh, something that we do with with not only our children, but with other just other people. Sure. Uh, and, and the important thing here too, and I think where a lot of people struggle, is when we're passing the baton, but we don't know why. Or, or maybe even where'd this baton come from? I mean, imagine, imagine that you are just standing on the street and all of a sudden this guy runs up to you and hands you a baton and says, all right, keep going. And you're right. like, wait, what? Where right. did this come from? Why am I running? Where is this coming from? Wow, right? Yeah. I think that's a, that, that's a good way of looking at tradition is we want to, through discipleship, we want to make sure that people understand, hey, this is where this comes from. Exactly. Uh, and that's, for me, you know, that's why I think uh, a lot of our Protestant churches are really struggling with a lack of 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 teaching, um, of um, oh goodness, the word has just left my head. Um, the beginning instructions in church. Um, oh goodness, of course it's going to go away now. Well, let me while you're thinking about that. Yeah, I, I think what you're really hitting on is so often what's missing when it comes to tradition is the ability to explain the why behind the what. And I think this is where it becomes super important for us is are we explaining and teaching the why behind the what of what we're doing that's been passed on to us? And I think that that really is important for us to add the depth and the richness and the value. Mm -hmm. 
Catechism. Catechism. Wow. Uh, so, there's so many words in my head sometimes that I just I'm, I'm not I'm not sure which one I'm trying to grab at, but catechism is the word that I'm thinking of, and and that's what kind of what I'm getting to is is the the way that we're able to teach people, especially new believers in our churches or new members, is through catechism. And I think that's something that a lot of our a lot of our modern churches have have lost the importance of yes. is, is catechism is sitting down and saying like yes I want you to become a member um, but first we need you to understand where all of this started at um, where it started from and, and why we're continuing to pass this this baton using that analogy absolutely on. so for those of you who are wondering and you're asking a good question and you're saying Mike is the word tradition even in scripture now we're going to get to that a little later on in specifics but it is used thirteen times in the New Testament. Nine of them referring to a word, uh, halakha? Halakha. Halakha. Ooh, I got that one. Or rabbinic elaboration of the law. So they're explaining things that the uh, Old Testament was saying uh, the the Jews are practicing. Three times it denotes Christian tradition. For example, the tradition Paul received and transmitted about the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.23, and the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15.3, and other New Testament passages refer to the idea without explicitly using the term paradosis. Uh, examples would be Luke 1, 2, Romans 6, Romans 6, 17, 2 Peter 1, 21, and Jude 3. So we want to give you those just as a real basic beginning. That this really is a New Testament word, and they were using it not just in the negative sense, but also in a very positive sense. Now, the uh, teaching office given to the church requires the transmission of the history of events of God's self-disclosure to subsequent generations without distortion. So this is something we picked up from Thomas Odin that we thought was a real gem, a real gem, that one of the things that is being given to those in the ordained ministry, in the clergy, is to share what God has done in the events of God's self-disclosure to subsequent generations. So sometimes people use a phrase for tradition of, it is the memory or the working of the Holy Spirit in previous generations, and its ability to build that very bridge, like it did for them, into our lives. Mm. Yeah, and, and the way that the way that Odin phrases this, I think is really important. Um, where he says that it's the transmission of the history of the events of God's self-disclosure to subsequent generations without distortion. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where we start kind of getting into the the issue of of tradition throughout the history of the church is where those teachings have been distorted. yeah, um, and that's and and, the, and this is an important thing. Those traditions that that you know we'll kind of mention a few later on, but those are the ones that were bred out of, experience and reason with little to no scripture right. as as the foundation. And that's where you start seeing the history of the church and the tradition going going awry. And Josh, you had brought this up when we were talking about it, about have the issue of tradition as misuse and abuse. Um, would you say, what, what would that do to somebody if they're practicing a tradition that has maybe experience and some you know, repeated ritual, but it's not found in scripture. What might that do to them? I would say that, you know, in the cases of history, people have rejected it and even gone so far as to go the extreme the other way. Yeah. And so it becomes an issue of misuse 
And abuse leading to what? Disuse. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, even to the point of people saying, well, there, you know, there is no God, right? Mm. To the, to the full length of disbelief in God because of the misuse of tradition and historical teaching. Or, I mean, they will throw out all tradition that denotes, you know, that was used during that time or, uh, you know, make up the, use a different one or, uh, change things based on that experience. So if one tradition, maybe it wasn't all bad, but they ruined one thing so that, you know, they'll end up saying, well, it's all bad at this point. Yeah. So they kind of lose trust in, mm-hmm. in tradition and in, in the teachings of the church. Right. Yeah. Only to throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but, but what's really interesting to me is, is the understanding that tradition holds us in connection with the historical church. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it still comes from Odin here, um, that contemporary believers stand in the midst of Christian history, not as isolated individuals, but as a community. And it's really interesting that, that this falls into place here because it's something that I have been really just, I don't want to say hounding on, but hounding on in, in our Bible studies here is that we're, are the faith that we have as believers in Jesus Christ right now is not this individualistic faith that we yes. that has being taught to people yeah. that that we're being you know instructed to have, where it's all that matters in this world is my belief and what I think is true and what what I know to be the truth of Jesus. The reality is is that Scripture never has us deviate away from the communal faith that yes. the historic church has had all the way from the beginning of time where God is establishing his people, Israel, right? It wasn't, you know, oh, Abraham and then the people of Israel. It was, he was included with them. And that's the same thing for our Christian church. The The Christian faith is that it's not just individualistic. It is communal. That's Absolutely. why Paul instructs us to, to come together continually, to not, you know, stop meeting together. Um, that is why tradition is important here is because it allows us to stand in communion with one another here together now, but also the saints of the past. Yeah, and and I think as we're looking at that, what a way to provoke us, and I I really appreciate that, Pastor Dad, to provoke us to say, we as one person do not have the whole mind of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's we we're only seeing in part, and then we're going to step up to the plate and say, My part is the whole. And hmm. I think being able to say, hey, you know what? My part is only a part. And what do not only other believers today say is the Orthodox faith, but what has the saints that have come before me say is the holistic faith that has been handed down to mm-hmm. us? And, and what you said just reminded me of, of what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, yep. starting at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body— Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And it goes on to talk about who the head is of that body, and it's Christ. Christ, yeah. So, so it, again, individualism was not a part of the, of the, of the, of the classic traditional teaching of, of the church, and it's not, it's not in Scripture. That so it's just individual. It's so good that Odin is provoking us 
to say we're not isolated individuals, but we're standing on the shoulders Mm -hmm. of those who have gone before us. And we really need to say, what was the mind of Christ past? What is it present? And now we'll be obviously in the future, but it's got to stay orthodox. It's got to stay orthodox. Yeah, absolutely. And and we we talked about this in in the last episode on scripture about um, the manuscripts, right? How there were what was it? Just about six thousand or more yeah, New like Testament that. manuscripts mm-hmm. that we've found together, and there's been only a couple of copies of Homer mm-hmm. that have made it through. Um, but but I bring that up because we can we can see that historic authors and teachers are tested right throughout time. Exactly. So yeah. you think about some of the traditions that we have now that started at the very beginning, the first century church, the second century church with the with the first um, disciples and the second you know the second set of disciples, the second generation of disciples. Um, what's important to understand is that these these classic writers, um, these teachers, they have been tested, they've been questioned, they've been probed, analyzed, and they've been utilized. Um, and Odin says that modern interpretation does well to build upon this. So Amen. it's understanding that we can pick up a writing from Augustus and say, wow, this has stood the test of time and it still remains the truth about God here. And, uh, oh, okay, well, this, this church over here or this group is teaching something counter to this. Well, let's, let's see why. And, in, in, you know, you, you had said to me before, how can we disregard you know, over 1,500, 1,600, however many years of, of church teaching yeah. completely, just throw it all out. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make sense. It really, it really should encourage and help our faith to know these are proven tracks that people have walked on. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's a solid way to make a strong saint, a solid mm-hmm. way to follow these traditions. And, and you're saying that, and, and this kind of brings to mind this question is why in the world is tradition important? Yeah. Well, I, I think that as we're recognizing that we're all having those glasses on, that we're all having some form of tradition, tradition has enriched us. And that, let me just say of its important, it has enriched us, the experience of all of us. I think of hymns, mm-hmm. we think of prayers uh, and, and the creeds of the church while centered on scripture, they have become a part of our tradition. Mm-hmm. I think somebody said, and I'd have to validate this, but the number one most recognized song in the world, or one of them, is Amazing Grace. Hmm. Uh, we think about prayers like how recognizable is the Our Father, right. um, the creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Anastasius Creed. All of these have become a part of what it what it has uh, what it has deepened uh, mm. inside of our souls to make us rich Christians. And it really does connect us on, in a way that people often don't recognize. If you, I've done, I've done a, a lot of funerals uh, in my career as a pastor, and I meet people who, are, who have been devout Christians their entire lives, and I meet people who have never stepped foot in church. But at almost every funeral that I've done, no matter what, end of the spectrum these people are on, almost everyone recognizes the uh, the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. If they don't know it, they, they may not know all the words, but they know they know it. They they've heard it. They're like, yes, this sounds familiar to me. Psalm the twenty third Psalm. Yeah. Um I'm not a you know, I don't often use the King James, but when I when I do uh Psalm twenty three at funerals, I use the King James because it's it's just something that people 
connect with. It resonates with them. It, it, it makes them feel something deeper while connecting them to God's word. And that is part of tradition. Yeah. It, it, it connects us there. And think about the, the, the creed, you know, um, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. As soon as you start saying that, people's wheels start turning. Yeah. Even if they haven't heard it in a long time, even if they only heard it as children and it's been 40 years since they've heard it again, they start to turn. Yes. They start to come up. And in... in in thinking about that too, um, it, this reminds me uh, of a story um, that I have. So I used to uh, uh, be a camp counselor for one of our church camps over at uh, Green Hills Camp um, here in, here in uh, Pennsylvania, and we had another pastor, another United Methodist pastor, who would who would come and, and be a counselor here. And he was in his, I believe, his late 40s, early 50s when he was um, diagnosed with um, early onset Alzheimer's. And um, I remember, I think it was over a three or four year period, you started to see that that progress or really regression of the mind. And he, you know, the first couple of years would kind of recognize where he was, who we were. But as time went on, it, it became very obvious that he didn't know who we were. Um, and it got to a point where he had to, he, when he came, a caretaker had to come with him. Um, but his children were in this camp. His, his wife was one of the other counselors. And so it was, it was nice to keep doing it. And I remember uh, one of the last times that I saw him uh, before he had passed away because he ended up succumbing to it. Um, I don't know if he knew who he was, where he was, who his children were, what was going on. But as soon as we started doing the liturgy for communion. As soon as we started singing hymns and and preparing the Lord's table, it all clicked in his head. That's awesome. He he was able to recite everything without without anything written. He knew all of the hymns. He knew all of the. I I I just could not take my eyes off of him as we were singing the hymns, and and this this man who could hardly remember his own name was singing hymns. And knew all the words, every verse. Yeah. And it, and it goes to show that yes, music's important there, and that's that's a whole other subject. But even talking about the liturgy of communion, that is tradition yes. passed down and and recollected in the mind. Yeah. And it you, was a beautiful, beautiful testament to God. You can see right away he he was absolutely enriched by tradition. Oh yes. It it affected him for the positive. Now. Uh, Cokesbury in the R in the NRSV Bible oh, says yes. this thing. This was one of the things that we were both super excited about. Well, you can hear it. Hold on, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna play for you where that comes from. It's this this Bible I have right in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> There's our audio right there. That's right. Tradition helps us to reach beyond the weaknesses of the church in the present and recover the richness of faith expressed in early generations. Oh man. That's a whole episode right it there. It is. It's dropped the mic. I mean, think about that. Now, I, I could be wrong in this in this um, perspective, but I I have seen a growing number of people who are frustrated with the church, who are frustrated with religion, who are frustrated with Christianity, who are trying to reformulate their understanding of faith. And the thing that seems to be consistently bringing them back into a deep, lasting, foundational faith in Jesus is some of the historic, traditional teachings of the church. The things that we do for a reason, yeah. 
and it's just amazing to watch it because we we're we're living in a time where people say well if you want to connect people to the church we have to start kind of keep going after the seeker sensitive movement of the church do what appeals to the people bring them in and i think the reality here is we can bring in all the people in the world but until we start building up past the weaknesses of the church with tradition it's just shallow faith yeah and it I, can be it can be i think as a culture wherever you are i think as a community a city wherever you live you're experiencing like the rest of us in the west that the foundations of the very essence of who we are are being eroded mm-hmm. if not washed away absolutely and so one of the great enriching and appeals of tradition is that it's an anchor mm-hmm. it anchors you into what god has said what god has practiced uh, in 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 obedience to scripture, um, the 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 blessing of tradition and what it could do in our lives, and so it it moves us past the weaknesses even we're experiencing in our culture right now. Mm. And uh, one of the things that I have seen again and again as I've been in ministry over the years is that people have to keep reinventing what has already been, mm-hmm. and, and maybe inventing is the wrong word because we don't want to invent anything new, right? They have to keep reestablishing what has already been established. Maybe that's the better way of saying it. So they wrestle over very basic doctrines like who is Christ, his humanity, and his divinity. They mm-hmm. wrestle over the Trinity, or they wrestle over uh, basic establishments like we see in marriage, family, mm-hmm. um, work. We did a whole episode on work. These right. were traditions um, that come from Scripture at least the good ones, mm-hmm. that have moved people past weakness and made strong, strong saints. And in, in, in trying to not not rebuild it, but reestablish it, I think what I think what it is, it just in analyzing the people around me, um, is being in the postmodern era, people want concrete, hard evidence and, and, and to to know it fully to in order to trust it, right? Whatever it is, you know, quote unquote it. And I think when it comes to these things, like the basic teachings of Christ, for example, Christ was fully human and fully divine. We have understood this to be the truth since the very beginning of, of the church. It has it has stood the test of time and being taught and being circulated around the world. That baton passed. Right. But today, a lot of people want to, to they, they hear that and they're like, okay, that might be true, but how how can I know? How can I prove it? It's like Thomas. How how do I know that that's Christ unless I touch his hands, unless I see the holes, unless I put my fingers there? I think that's what the what people want today, and that's okay. It's okay to want that. But we have to remember that a part of our faith, a part of what we know is mystery. It is a realm of unknowing, and that's the beautiful hardship of it is sometimes as someone who likes to have concrete evidence, as someone with a very, you know, mathematical mind and, and, and science-driven, I like to know what starts, what ends, how it gets there. And that's something that challenged my faith, you know, uh, even just a few years ago, um, was that there are some things that we just don't know, that we won't know. And so to try to to try to use reason and experience to explain Christ's humanity and divinity all at the same time, that's difficult. That's difficult. But allowing tradition to be a foundational part in my life there, I can look at that teaching and say, I don't fully understand it right now, but I know that through the last 
2,000 years or so, it has stood the test of time. Yeah. And so there is truth there. And I don't, I don't have to know it all 100% in order for it to be true. Yeah. And it's, it's divine revelation given to us. Mm-hmm. We don't always have to understand it necessarily to believe it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know all, I don't understand all of quantum physics, mm-hmm. but I believe it's true. Yeah. And I think divine revelation is given to us. And the tradition of the church helps us to express that divine revelation in this case about the humanity and divinity of Christ. I think, I think it's a, it's a way to help in our weaknesses. Yeah, well, and, and to, to kind of touch on a, a more um, a modern example of things that's been circulating around, it's kind of like the flat earth versus the round earth, you know, whole thing is, have I ever flown out to space and seen that the earth is round? Right. No, I have not. Um, but I have a lot of, of trust in the people that have done the research who have been out there and say, y- yes, it is. And so that's an example where I don't, I don't know for certain. Like I, I have never seen it with my own eyes. So I could say, well, I don't see it, so I can't believe it. But I, I believe the people that have done it, yeah. that have gone out and done it. So And all the mathematics, et cetera, that prove it. And, and, and not to bunny trail too hard on that, but if you're also <laughs> struggling to, um, one of the things about living in a, in, a, in a culture that values the enlightenment or the scientific method of measurable, repeatable, observable is that when you're using that method, it is good for many things. But for example, when we're talking about historic evidence, there is some things that are less measurable and quantifiable. So for example, when we're talking about historic evidence of George Washington, I've never seen George Washington. I've never been able to measure his height and weight, but I do believe on good evidence of eyewitnesses that have seen George Washington, written down his accounts. And of course, we have his house or other things that that help us. In the same way, divine revelation is given to us through eyewitness accounts. And then we have real places, like we talked about last week, uh, temple artifacts or, or artifacts in general that are biblical in nature. So just know that sometimes there is some nuance to mm-hmm. when we're looking for evidence that it doesn't always fit within the uh, scientific method, and we have to use other types of research and evidence to build our faith. And primarily, that's why, again, we did the uh, whole episode on Scripture. Yeah, absolutely. And in all of that we've talked about with all this has seemed really good, but we we talked a little bit at the beginning about how sometimes tradition can be bad. Um, so can tradition be bad? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, it can yeah. be bad. Yeah. And And what we mean is this. Tradition most often, um, well, let's say it this way. Tradition is most often not good or bad. It's a tool. Okay. I mean, obviously there are some traditions that are anti-scriptural right out the gate and we're like, that is bad. Yeah. But most often tradition is neither good nor bad. It's a tool and it can be used for good or ill depending on the hand or the heart that uses it. Right. So a knife has the ability to cut a piece of meat. And, and, and get it more into portion size for us to eat, or obviously it can be used to kill. Right. And so we're trying to say there are, there are for example, people will say, oh, Pastor Thad, liturgy is dead. Mm. How could you use liturgy? Mm. Don't you know God can't move in liturgy? Right. I, I remember hearing that when I first started preaching was I had, uh, I, I, I often, I'll write out all of my sermon and I practice through that and, and I have it with me when I preach. And I had someone say to me, well, that's not Holy Spirit driven preaching if you're writing it down a few days beforehand and not delivering it on the spot. Right. And I said, that's funny because you're saying that the Holy Spirit can't 
be with me and and driving the words that I write down two days before the sermon is preached. Like that doesn't that doesn't make sense. Right. And I think the like the joke about about liturgy is, oh, I don't have any liturgy. I just do the same thing every week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't have any liturgy, but I'm sitting in the same pew or in the same chair that I sat in for the last 20 years or singing the same song or I woke up this morning and I brushed my teeth right it's uh we we often forget that liturgy is is a important part of tradition but it's something that we do every day we do and we want to make sure that the heart that's using that tool the tradition Mm -hmm. is a heart that is living the cross life, living the redemptive life, and is not using it for ill. Because, mm-hmm. of course, it could be used for ill. Yeah. But the heart that's reading the sermon, by faith, yes, the Holy Spirit can move. And we only double-dog dare you to go back in church history and read men like Jonathan Edwards, who read his sermons out word for word in a very dry and mundane way, and see what happens in church history when that man, full of faith in the Holy Ghost, preaches something like sinners in the hands of an angry God. Mm-hmm. Wow. Or even John Wesley. Yeah, or Wesley. Yeah, right. I mean, you can read all of his sermons that he read to people. And, and many others, yeah. many others like it. So um, tradition, again, if it's completely anti-scriptural, we'll get to that in a little bit. Yes, of course, throw that in the trash. That's garbage. But it's mostly about a tool, and, and it's who's using the tool and the faith behind it and the intentions of it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, yeah, well, I, I was going to bring something up, but that's that's kind of pretty off topic. So um, so we've mentioned it a little bit here and there, but, um, you know, sometimes there's, there's tradition that happens that isn't in the Bible, right? That's not mentioned in the Bible explicitly. So let's start there. Not so much, not so much tradition that contradicts scripture, but tradition that's not explicitly in, in the Bible. Um, so one of the, and I bring that up because sometimes I hear from people, show me that in the Bible. Yep. Um, and it, and it comes from the, the, the kind of the, well, the, the, the teaching of, of sola scriptura, right? Which again, isn't, isn't good or bad in itself. Um, but it, it, it makes me think of, uh, I just recently heard from somebody that said, I haven't said the apostles creed in years. And I asked, well, why is that? Why haven't you said it in years? And and this person said, well, the church that I go to now, um, they don't do the Apostles' Creed. And I asked, well, why is that? And this person said, well, our pastor said that it's not in the Bible. Right. The Apostles' Creed is not in the Bible, so we're not using it. And that is where the danger comes out of of of, of sola scriptura. Yeah, in and that in and that way. Let me let me say that sola scriptura has been a huge blessing. Oh yeah, especially in the reformational period, mm-hmm. which was dealing with a lot of anti-scriptural traditions. Yes. yes, which we'll get to in a little bit. And yet, if you look at sola scriptura, which is a I believe a Latin word to say scripture alone, mm-hmm. um, the reformers who penned that did not mean it in the way that we're currently taking it. Yeah. If you look at Martin Luther or John Calvin, these were men that practiced the traditions of the church. Right. It's a simple Google search. Yeah, Martin Martin Luther did not did not oppose some of the traditional teaching of the Catholic Church and then all of a sudden stop doing everything Catholic. Correct. That is not what happened here. Lowercase c, Catholic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think what we're saying is, yes, the Apostles' Creed may not be found in Scripture, but we have a good friend that... that, that, that 
uh, gave us a, 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 a little bit of tidbit here, but we can find lots of scripture in the Apostles' Creed. Mm. We can find many, if not all, foundational things in it from directly in scripture that are now condensed in a more pithy fashion mm-hmm. um, to help us um, with our faith. But sola scriptura does not mean me, my Bible, and my faith. And we, re- we covered that in the beginning of the show. Um, scripture is the ultimate authority. That, I think, is is one of the huge blessings that Sola Scriptura gave us, that no matter what we're doing, tradition including, Scripture is the ultimate authority, becomes the plumb line. But if something is not found in the Bible, it doesn't mean you can't practice it. Right. It should have its undergirding in either principle, mm-hmm. it should have its undergirding in character or in direct revelation, like it, it literally says it. But we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about, about later on that there are things that we practice that are not in the Bible. Mm. And we have to be comfortable with it enough to be able to say, we have a wide birth given to us by God that we can do all things to the glory of God. But there are some things that we do that are not in the Bible. Right. Well, I mean, an example of that is the season that we're in right now, we're about to enter into is the Easter season. Is that we, we, we practice it on a certain time every year. But there's nothing in Scripture that says, oh, it's, it's, it has to be on this day. So, or same thing with Christmas, right? We celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th. All right, well, show me in Scripture where Jesus was born on December 25th, um, and I will show you that you're using the wrong Bible. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that doing so and, and observing the birth of Christ on that day every year is a bad thing if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a great tradition. Yeah. It's a great ritual that we remind ourselves whether we're doing Lent and how cool is it that Easter or Resurrection Sunday for the church is not just a one-day celebration. Mm. It's going to become a season where we're going to be remembering and doing certain things within the church calendar to remind us. So um, so, tradition is a servant to scripture, Mm -hmm. and we have to remember that. But it, it doesn't have to be opposed to it just because it's not explicitly written in it. Right, right. Well, the, the what's interesting, uh, kind of touching back to some of the things that Odin said, he refers to Basil or Basil. I don't know how to which one it would be. I'm going to go with Basil. Let's go with it. Yeah. Um, but Odin says, among numerous examples of holy unwritten tradition mentioned by Basil are triune immersion, common prayer on the first day of the week, bending knees in prayer, and the sign of the cross. In these cases, there was no residue in the canon of Scripture of a written apostolic tradition, but that absence did not diminish their authority during the first five centuries. Yeah, just imagine if we didn't have Trinitarian understanding. Oh. I mean, what? not only would we be in, in, in dearth, but we would be in real trouble. We'd be in real trouble. And so we're saying that there are things that have come from tradition mm-hmm. that have helped our faith Beyond words, beyond yeah. words, and they were not explicitly given in Scripture, mm-hmm. and and so we're trying to provoke the concept that there are there are many things that we do that um, the church has embraced because it has edified us and has brought us to Christ. And again, we have found it either directly, indirectly, either by character or revelation in the Scripture. Again, as mm-hmm. our foundation, but it has to be something we have to be able to accept. Well, think about think about for example uh, one of the things is that um, that Odin brought up here with Basil was the sign of the cross, right? So in 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 the United Methodist Church, it's not really a practice for us. You're not going to walk into a United Methodist Church and have everyone do the sign of the cross. It's it's not going to happen. Um, and I was never raised to do that. 
But going to a seminary that also had Anglicans on it, I started seeing it more and I started mimicking it just because it's like, okay, they're, they're doing it. You know, I, I don't, there's not a problem with it. And, and it's one of those things that I don't fully understand why, why we do it. Um, I don't, I don't, I haven't looked really much into it up to this point, but I, I know that it's something that's been passed down. And so I, I do it anyways. Um, can you, can you kind of touch on that a little bit? As- I can't, I can't, it would take, it would take more of an episode. Okay. Okay. But let me, let me say this with the sign of the cross, what people often mistake it for, and it can be a superstitious thing Okay. that in and of itself, that that practice will ward off an evil spirit. So kind of like, uh, I heard from someone saying that there was a, there's a, there's a saint there. One of the saints, I don't remember who it is that, um, um, you, you, bury in your yard if you're trying to sell your house like the statue the figure of the saint like yes. that's a that's that's not that's a tradition it can be a tradition but that is a wrong tradition that's superstitious yes and and that is obviously what we're not saying right what we are saying is that the sign of the cross was meant to provoke people mm-hmm. to remember their baptism and their death in the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ right and 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 every time that I've done it and I've looked at it it almost it, it makes me feel like I'm being covered in in the cross in in the oh blood. yeah I, I mean oh, it's, yeah. you think about even when I when I uh, am praying with people who are sick or need healing and I use an, I use oil I'll do exactly. the sign of the cross on their forehead or on the area that that's there not because it does anything magical not because it's a, a it's a trick or anything it's it's to help us remember to help us kind of embrace that. So when I when I started doing the sign of the cross, you know, it's the forehead down to your chest, to your left, to your right. I think that's how it goes. That's how I've seen it done. It, it, it just, that that is the center part of your body. That that That's where, you know, you're covering your brain, you're covering your, your, your organs, you're covering your heart, you're covering your lungs, right? Your, your whole body. Yes. You're, you're covering with the essential parts of your body, the things that you really can't live without, um, you're covering with the cross and... And that's just kind of how I've seen it. Yes. Um, and it just, I don't know, it makes me feel good. And what we're, what we're saying is that if these traditions, like the sign of the cross, is provoking you to love Jesus more, mm. it is provoking you to remember your baptism, remember that Christ died for you and rose again. And oftentimes you'll see this in the liturgy. People will make the sign of the cross at key and critical moments when the gospel is being proclaimed or the gospel is being replayed. Friends, it's okay. Mm. It's okay. This is this is something that's been passed on. Think about how we are we are five sense human beings, and so the church came up with a way to remind you visually, not mm. just from your auditory, but visually, that you belong to Jesus Christ. And something so simple but profound can be the sign of the cross, and that becomes a great example for us. That yes, it can be used in a way over time. That if someone's not explaining the why behind the what that it becomes superstitious. But I'll tell you, and we said it again last week, how many times have we encountered people that say, yeah, you know, my life by the fruit of it may not show that I'm a Christian, but it's okay, pastor, I go to church. Yeah, That's superstitious. Yeah. Or they say, you know, pastor, I, I may be dabbling in witchcraft or I may be dabbling in, in the occult, but you know, I do read my Bible once or twice a week, so I'm okay. Yeah. I mean, anything that the church presents to us can become a ritual that leads to superstition. Right, absolutely. But the ones that, like the sign of the cross, yeah. if that's deepening and enriching your faith, my friend, go ahead. Well, and 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 we have to we have to remember something like the sign of the cross, for example, is not just something that started last week. 
a oh, couple no. years ago. I mean, no. this is second century teaching from the church. Yeah. Right, yeah. second century means the, the the year 100 and on, which means we have, you know, some disciples that might have been around Jesus near the beginning part of that, but their disciples that they taught are the ones that started projecting this outward, right? Yeah, and 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 that brings up an important point here from from Odin. He continues on talking about Basil, Basil, <laughs> and says. Um, that they argued that memories and practices evidently familiar to those generations immediately following the apostles and continued by long usage should remain highly valued in Christian teaching. Highly valued. Amen. That's a good mm-hmm. word. That's a good word. It's I don't really, I I mean I think we've pretty much said it all there. I mean it's it's that's a good way to summarize that altogether. Yeah, and and the 39 articles, again, if you're not familiar, this is uh, statements of faith given uh, by the uh, Anglican reformers. Um, you can find this in the book of the back of the Book of Common Prayer. It says this. It says, it's not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it expound one place of scripture that can be repugnant to another. So as we're talking about tradition, we are saying that it's not lawful for the church to ordain, that is command, anything that is contrary to God's written word or the more common one that we see in church history is someone exacerbates one part of scripture mm-hmm. over another one and it becomes repugnant. Right. And, and we're they not allowing use, scripture to um, to interpret scripture. Right, right. Right. And keep its keep its proper balance and its proper place. Right. And so then they create a tradition over the overbalance of one and then it becomes repugnant. It becomes a situation sometimes that could be deadly. Mm. And so holy scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. So that whatsoever is not read therein, nor be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith or thought to be requisite to necessary of salvation. And those are and those two things that you just read there uh, from the thirty nine articles is also included in the book of discipline. Yes. And we talked about this uh, two weeks ago when we talked about scripture. Is is again it comes back to scripture. Scripture is the foundational thing here and and is what is consistent through all of these traditions that are good, that we should be doing. But it does bring up the question of what happens when tradition actually contradicts Scripture. Wait, did I just say that? When When tradition tradition contradicts Scripture. Right, right. I'm glad I caught that. No, and I think the the Book of Discipline does this really well. Scripture remains the norm by which all traditions are judged. Mm. So that, that is as clear of a statement as can possibly be. Whatever tradition that we're doing, if it, it, if it, it has to be judged by Holy Scripture, mm-hmm. period. Oh, yeah. And, and if, again, if it cannot come by direct command or by revelation or character, like we were talking about the sign of the cross, it has the ability to um, give us revelation or the um, revealing of Christ, I mean, I think making the sign of the cross is pretty obvious. That's revealing Jesus. Um, tradition needs to be judged by Scripture. So we have some examples of that that uh, are, I think should be common knowledge. We wanted to bring up times when traditions were practiced that were anti-scriptural or clearly against the character of God and, and got us into trouble. Um, for example, in the Middle Ages, they came up with a doctrine concerning purgatory. We don't have time to go into the whole episode on that. Mm -hmm. So they were saying something anti-scriptural. 
They were saying that if you found yourself in purgatory, you were a baptized Christian, but you were not ready yet to see God, you went into this place of purging. And if you wanted out of it, your relatives should give a little bit of money. So they came up with this ridiculous statement that when a coin rings, a soul springs. And it started, and part of that came out as a fundraiser too. Oh yeah, I don't I don't know if you were aware of that, but Saint, it, I believe St. Peter's Basilica. I, I believe so, I, and this is without double checking that. So if we're wrong, there correct us in an email or something. But yeah, it, it was it was as a fundraiser to help build a building was right. to teach this. Yeah, and it's clearly an affront to the blood of Jesus. Right, it's clearly an affront to the to the to the to the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, and it needed to be done away with. Yep, and so who did that? The famous Martin Luther. Oh, okay. Yeah, the famous Martin Luther. He he had his stomach full of it after a while and couldn't stand it. And if you know anything about Luther, he does not hold any punches. Yeah. And so, you know, he writes a famous 95 thesis and nails it to the, to I believe it was the Wittenberg door. And he's going after it because, you know what, as a man who knew the scripture, he was a New Testament theologian. He was ridiculous. It was clearly against scripture to tell people that if you throw a coin and it rings in the bottom of the coffer, all of a sudden your great granddad or your mom gets popped out of purgatory. It's right. just clearly an affront to Christ. Right. And, and 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 another important thing too is is and again this is a whole other episode we could go on to is that Luther doesn't do these things and then says, All right, I'm gonna go make my own church now. Right. He's trying he's trying to to reform in, in a positive light, what the church is teaching. Yes. Uh, and that kind of goes along the lines of, hey, if your church is doing something that's anti-biblical, the best option isn't always just to leave. It's sometimes to stay, to take a stance and say, hey, this is not okay. And to do so with, with, with mercy and with love and with grace as best as we possibly can. Yeah, yeah. Um, but another another example here that we kind of talked about, and, and we again we don't have the time to go through all of these to the fullest extent, but papal authority. We've definitely seen some abuses in church history on papal authority, especially in in regard to popes wanting to have worldwide jurisdiction over the whole church. Yeah. So what we're not saying is that the pope can't be the bishop of Rome. Of course, he can be the bishop of Rome. But we've seen that the papal authority has become abusive when the Pope tries to take jurisdiction over other areas that are not Rome. Mm. And we can go on and on about that. Another modern example that you brought up, which I thought was very good, was some of the issues we're facing in the progressive movement that we, uh, what did you say? It was, well, in in progressive theology, some of the some of the focus tends to be less on the divinity of Jesus and more on his humanity. Right. Um, but but even in that, there's also a reducing of the importance and focus on the crucifixion, on the pain that was endured by Jesus, um, on resurrection, on hell. It, kind of some of these these teachings are being you know, kind of pushed to the side to focus more on the the life of Jesus and what Jesus did during his life and not so much the consequences of sin. Does that make does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah. We came up with the phrase the clean and tidy Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where I, everything was perfect all the time. There right. was no you know pain and suffering. And 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 that's again, that was a that was a lot of emphasis that comes out of progressive theology. Mm-hmm. Now now it is important I, I do like to note this. When we talk about progressive theology, 
um, versus like traditional orthodox theology. What we're not saying is Democrats versus Republicans, conservative Amen. versus liberal. That's not, this is, we're divorcing that from politics. Correct. Progressive theology is is in itself a form of theology, just like um, liberation theology. Right. Um, so we're just, we're, I want to make sure that that's understood. No, very, very well said. And, and what we're saying is that a crossless Jesus mm-hmm. is no Jesus of the Orthodox or biblical faith. Mm-hmm. A re- no resurrection is not Orthodox. This is not a biblical faith. And no hell is not a biblical faith because it does not measure to the plumb line of uh, of scripture. And, and of course today, another example is the exaltation of experience itself yeah. as the new plumb line instead of scripture being the plumb line. Well, uh, and, and we'll, th- well, I will touch on the experience in, in just a second, but I do want to go back to the, to the crucifixion. If our whole focus is on all the good things that Jesus did in this world, right? If that's all we focus on and neglect everything else, we're missing something very important in what Jesus was doing and why. Jesus empties himself, God empties himself in the form of Jesus to come onto this earth in a world full of sinners who hate him, who abuse him. And despite knowing what is going to happen to him, despite the crucifixion, despite the sacrifice, despite taking on the weight of sin, he still does all of that good stuff. Amen. He doesn't do it because he says, oh, it's the right thing to do and that's it. There's something deeper there. And you, you cannot have a full grasp and understanding of the goodness of Jesus without the wickedness of humanity that kills him. And this is just a great way for us. If you're listening and you're experiencing the weight of that sin in your life, you know that you have broken the Ten Commandments. I mean, let's something, some, I don't want to say simple, but you've lied, you've stolen, maybe you've committed adultery, whether in your heart or, or literally, mm-hmm. there is a way to become clean. There's right. a way to have freedom from your sin. And what we're talking is the life of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, particularly here as we're coming into Passion Week, the blood has the ability to wash you clean, absolutely, to make you brand new. And the resurrection, you can have eternal life because he lives. And so if this is new or hard for you, just Join with the church this weekend. Come, come to your local good church, um, and and hear the story and put your faith in it. Or if you're at home, open up your Bible app. Yep. Get to the Book of Matthew. Get to the the Gospel of John and read it. Read it with the eyes of faith and and see the story that Jesus really lived out for you. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and you had. Um, that's that's a good thing to do for all of us. I mean, even even if you've been a believer your whole life, is to is to just revisit our faith with fresh eyes, yes, um, and to see it as if we were children experiencing something new all over again. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It's it's a part of a good experience for us. But there is there is a problem, like you had mentioned before, where experience, negative experience, bad experience, becomes the new plumb line of how we how yeah. we um, look at things. And we'll touch on this a lot more. Uh, in two weeks when we talk about um, experience and and reason. But we have to understand that experience is not the end-all be-all. There's a lot of negative experience that we have in this world that doesn't negate the truth of Christ. That's right. Um, And and we have to to understand that. Yeah. So what does the Bible actually say about tradition? Um, That's a great question. Like explicitly, what does it say? Josh? Yeah, it says in uh, Colossians, 
eleven two. It says now. For, no, First Corinthians. First Corinthians. I'm so sorry. That's all right. First Corinthians. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Yeah. So here we are. We're just making clear that the Apostle Paul was telling people maintain the the traditions or the things I've handed on to you. I've delivered them literally to you. What you should be doing. So it's it's you can you can go ahead and read it. First uh, Corinthians eleven two. That what do we got in Second Thessalonians? Yeah, in uh, in Second Thessalonians chapter two verse fifteen it says, "So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter." And that that really touches on the the importance of oral tradition as well. It does. I mean, written tradition is is. I mean, what we're seeing through scripture is is written tradition, but we also have to remember, as you said earlier, that that this written tradition started as oral tradition, um, and and that's I mean that's where we're at. And there was accompanying again practices and rituals that the church was doing, um, and 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 Paul is saying, hey, you saw it, you heard it, now go ahead and practice it. Josh, what's our next one? Yeah, it says a little farther down in Second uh, Thessalonians three sixteen. No, three six. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in the idleness, no, in idleness, and not accord, and not in accord with the traditions that you have received from us. Mm, okay. Wow. So he's saying any, any, you know, if you're seeing someone who's deviating away from the traditions that we, the apostles, have taught you, wow. that they're out of line. That you should you should step away from them, keep away from them. Wow, that's powerful. I mean that that takes some time to really think through. Of number one, do I know my scripture? Do I know those traditions? Because they have a lot of weight. They have a lot of weight. So much so that if you see, for example, this issue of idleness, if a brother is calling himself a brother and he's walking in idleness. And not in accordance with the tradition, get away from them. I mean, that's mm. that's pretty weighty. It is, and and that's not to be confused with, right? It's not to be confused with Jesus dining with sinners, right? right? We have to understand that what Paul is talking about here is is gathering together with people who have professed Jesus who say that they're repentant sinners and have chosen to be unrepentant in that. Our faith in Jesus always leads us to repentance. And if we're openly if we're openly avoiding repentance, then then we're at a point where we start to lead people in the wrong direction. Yeah. So what Paul is saying here is not that we should avoid ministering to this person, that we should avoid um, you know, being around this person and it, because they're they're wicked and ah, you know, they're like like a leper. The avoidance is is more so that 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 idleness does not seep into the lives of believers in that moment. Yeah, and that and that's the importance here. I do want to bring that a up. A little leaven leavens the whole batch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yep. And, and then finally, we've got Jude. We've got Jude chapter one, and that's the only. That's, chapter that really uh, is yeah, Jude. Yeah. So, so you don't really have to say that. <laughs> um, so we have Jude, verse 3, says, Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write an appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Wow. Fight for it. 
Yeah. Contend for it. Not not with your literal fists or guns. <laughs> but but be firm about it because you've been given a faith that's been handed down to you and it's been delivered to the church. And we talked earlier a little bit about individual versus communal, right? Right. Right here's a perfect example of that. In in the NRSV, what it was which is what I had just read, it says um uh, let's see, uh, starting at the beginning of verse three, beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, right? Mm, the salvation, salvation we share. And then go back into the ESV and it says, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, right? Those, nowhere is he saying our individual salvation. It's all common, communal, together. And that is a tradition yeah. that is being passed down to and us. And we're not saying you shouldn't have personal faith in Jesus, right? but know that your personal faith is going to baptize you into a larger body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And again, go read Romans chapter 6, the whole chapter, and other chapters about baptism. Oftentimes, it's talking about your faith. Mm-hmm. And as you enter into personal faith with Christ, you enter those waters of baptism, you're coming into a common salvation, mm-hmm. a communal baptism. It's mm-hmm. coming into the body of Christ. Well, and, and even as, and we're a little bit off topic now, but it's fine. Um, even as as Wesleyans, people who fall under Wesleyan tradition and Wesleyan teaching, we we have to remember that, that Wesley was all about holiness, personal holiness. But he said that there is no holiness except social holiness, mm. right? And and that that's an important thing is we can, we can become believers in Jesus Christ through our personal prayer, right? Through our personal turn. That, it starts personally, doesn't it? It, it absolutely does. We're, we're in our hearts. We have, to, we have to turn over our own wickedness to Christ and say, I can't do this alone. I need you, right? But we will never grow in holiness if it's just individual. We'll never grow in holiness. Get, get, in, a, get in a body of believers. Exactly. Get absolutely. Get in a body of believers. I, it, and my favorite, my favorite analogy that I use with people is, is that you can stand around all day and say that you're a, you're a professional weightlifter, right? But if you refuse to step foot in the gym, you're not going to go very far. Yeah. You're not going to go any fair. Any f- very far. Wow. I can get to preaching here. Oh, yeah. We, should, we shouldn't. We should. Uh, th- that's a whole other thing. So, so in talking about all of this, like I said before, we, we often get tradition, church tradition and historic teaching of the church confused with the traditions that we have maybe in our homes mm-hmm. or everyday things. But but it's not to say that, that those traditions are bad traditions. So, you know, we do. We have traditions in our homes that have been passed down um, that, you know, as, as as we talked about earlier, as fathers, you know, you've, you've raised most of your children. I mean, they're, they're all... And an older, what's your, your youngest is how old? Malachi is three, but all the way up to 19. Right. And, and Larissa and I, my wife and I, we, we just have our, our newborn and we're at a point now where we're going to start establishing traditions in our home that have a lasting, a lasting effect, a lasting reason. Absolutely. Um, one of, one of the people in my church was just telling me that they're not going to be able to come to our, our Maundy Thursday service. And when I asked why, they said, because Ever since my husband and I had our children and our children became adults, we found that the only day that we could get together once a week to share family dinner was on Thursday. And we don't sacrifice that for anything. And to me, I'm like, that's a, that's a perfect reason yeah. right there. Yeah. That is a tradition that has been established in the home for a good purpose and with good intent and good reason that is lasting. And, it's, and, and we want to encourage traditions yes. that are going to, again, enrich the family. Mm-hmm. They're going to build the family. And so 
Um, we have the traditions in our everyday lives. Um, one of the phrases I know that really popped up to you was the liturgy of the ordinary. Yeah, that's that's actually a book um, by uh, Tish Harrison Warren. It's called Liturgy of the Ordinary: Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, and and I like that phrase. Um, because it does, it has some importance. Liturgy of the ordinary, liturgy and tradition are very much in common with one another. And if we think that our lives are without liturgy, if we think that that our worship services are without liturgy, just because we don't have a bulletin and we don't have a structured service, liturgy is there yeah. in everything that we do. Um, and and really, in this book, one of the things that that really stuck to me is if you wake up every morning and you start your day by opening up Facebook. If that's the very first thing you do, you've established a liturgy in your life of the importance of Facebook. If that is the first thing that you do is open up social media, that is your liturgy. And you you look at that and you say, okay, is this liturgy, is this tradition, right? Is this giving glory to God or is it giving glory to myself? Yeah, and if we're not honest, we're de- we're, we're we're in somewhat denial that we're not creatures of habit, or mm-hmm. we're not liturgical creatures. Right, we really are, and 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 that's why good tradition is an important thing. That's right. Is our tradition healthy? Is it godly? Is it leading us closer to Christ? Absolutely, um, and and you know sometimes we don't even think about some of the traditions that we do have. Yep. I mean, we 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 do them because it, we've been told to do them, and sometimes we even understand why we do them, but we don't think of them as traditions, and they are. So we we've got a good example. Josh, why don't you why don't you read some of these? Yeah, it says the Pledge of Allegiance, um, hats off, a while inside and during the national anthem, standing to shake hands. You know, I got a funny uh, story. Well, we do uh, cleaning. And when everyone leaves, I can't tell you, like, it would be Friday night, and everyone's leaving, and we're cleaning, and it's like, I know what they're going to say, have a good weekend, you too, just over and over, and I've said have a good weekend to people on Tuesday, which is kind of embarrassing, (laughs) but... um, that's a tradition, you yeah. know, that we all do. Yeah, and we even have a greeting tradition of how are you? Yeah. And most of the time, we don't even mean it at a heartfelt level, like, how are you? And we're going to sit down and start talking. Yeah. It's just a greeting, like, we say hello. And yeah. how many times do people say, I'm doing good, and either their face is like, you know, yeah, they not could be, so they good. Could be in <laughs> misery. <Yeah. laughs> or even, I even think about, I'm a huge hockey fan, and, and uh, as, a, as a Pittsburgh Penguins fan, one of my, one of my favorite goaltenders was Marc-Andre Fleury. And one of the things that he does that's kind of part of his tradition is if he is facing a shot and the shot comes in, the puck comes in, and it hits the goalposts, if it hits the, any of it, you, you, I mean, you hear it ding off. As it goes away, he, he will come back and tap it as like a thank you to the goalpost for stopping the puck from going into the net. But that's a, that's a tradition. It that is. is a liturgy for him. That is something that he does. Um, and, and we look at that and we think about it and we laugh about it, but we don't, we don't remember that it is tradition. And it's, it's just like what Josh said with the Pledge of Allegiance, putting the hand over the heart. We, we, we do that without ever giving it much thought. Yeah. And it is, it's tradition. Now, again, this is where we come into place. That's something that, that most every Western American does. Imagine if the traditions in our homes were as fundamentally driven into our brain as that is, and it was about giving glory to God. Absolutely. 
I mean, imagine, imagine what our homes would look like, our communities, if the tradition that we established as families was, hey, every day that we wake up, we're going to pray together. Yes. We're going to pray that we have a good day, that we do good things, that Christ challenges us today to be better and to be more like him. Imagine what that would look like. Yeah. And, and like one of those ancient traditions is called the family altar. Okay. And it was a family prayer time that occurred usually at the end of the day, and dad and or mom together were going to lead the family in prayer. And then this is a also a tradition of, especially in the Anglican communion, where you do, you have morning prayer, mm-hmm. midday prayer, and evening prayer. So they condensed the monastic model, mm-hmm. and which was a seven time a seven cycle day of prayer, which was all to fill Paul's command to pray all day long. Mm-hmm. And 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 so what if families everywhere? had a revival in their Mm -hmm. house called the family altar time, the family prayer time. And it can be as simple as reading a few small scriptures Mm -hmm. and praying about them and then laying hands on your kids Mm -hmm. while putting your hand on their shoulder in in permissible and comfortable ways. And you pray a blessing over them or you pray that God's, God's revelation of Jesus would be known to them. I mean, what we're talking about here is trying to provoke towards good traditions that will grow our families, that will help our families, that will not only help us. I mean, if if you're even if you're single, starting that tradition of getting up every day. You talked about this a couple episodes ago. Just waking up in the morning. Thank you, God. Yeah. Thank you, God. First words out of your mouth. I mean, we're yeah. not we're not trying to bring condemnation if the first words out of your mouth is a groan. Yeah. Or oh my. Where's my coffee? Where's my coffee? Yeah. But I think you're trying to we're, we're trying to hopefully paint a picture that tradition can have such a valuable place in our life. Absolutely. And and, and this is to say that 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 these are like the like for example, what you just said about about laying our hands on on children on our children and praying a blessing over them. That's one of those traditions that is a good tradition. But show me it in scripture. Exactly. If we're if we're only basing it on that, and we're not finding the you know yeah we can talk about you know let let the little children come and all that. But show me in scripture where the the apostles placed their hands on children over their head and blessed them and said you know and prayed that the Lord be with them that day. Oh, you won't find it. That doesn't make it less valuable, Absolutely. less true, less less meaningful. And so we, there really is value in the tradition and the history of the church. And what has been taught and stood the test of time that has been proven and seen as good throughout Scripture, maybe not even, maybe not in it, but not contra, not counter to Scripture. Right. Uh, and then there's the the traditions, the liturgy that we start every single day, and again, foundational in Scripture. Right. Um, it 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 doesn't have to explicitly say yes, you do this right in Scripture, but we can see that. Jesus values children. Jesus values blessing. The apostles valued laying their hands on people. Jesus valued laying his hands on people when he blessed and healed them. So we can take all of that and say, ah, putting my hand on my son's shoulder in the morning, even as a newborn and saying, Father, be with him today is a good thing to do. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. So what does all of this do? What does all of this do for us? It's going to help us grow in maturity. First and foremost, if Paul is commanding us, and he does in the book of Ephesians, to grow in maturity in Christ, we have an opportunity to look back and say, how have other Christians matured? What are those proven, time-honored traditions or rituals or practices, interpretations that grew balanced mature, healthy Christians? Mm. And we have so much church history, so much record there. Yeah, and I would say... um, 
the like with the importance of it, we do martial arts, uh, a bunch of us in our family, and the n- most number one secret, not secret, just, you know, thing that makes you good at martial arts is doing it a million times. And doing it again and again and again. And so, like, you're doing a form, which is a, a combination of moves. If you do it 50 times and then 100 times and then 1,000 times, you're going to be really good. You know, if you break a board multiple times, you're going to be more confident. So when we do different, you know, liturgies or traditions, it can help us, you know, learn more. We'll grow. We'll rem- and when we have it memorized, you know, especially with Scripture, if we're reading that and memorizing that, I know we talked about this last week, but we can get it really into ourselves. Yeah, that's, that's a great example. And, and elsewhere, Paul, when he's talking about putting things into practice, one of the words he's going to use is gymnasium. This, I'm going to get my Greek wrong again. But you have in mind of that thing of what do you do when you go to a gym? There's stretching, pulling, repetition, practice over and over and over again. And we're, we're, we're wanting to grow in maturity. We're wanting to grow where, we, where we, we, uh, we grow in holiness. It's going to happen by those, by those reps. Well, and, and looking at what Paul says, and, and talking about establishing tradition or even going back to tradition, it does take discipline. It does. It does. And, that, and that's where we grow in our maturity, right, mm-hmm. um, is it, through discipline. So, um, you know, looking at what Paul, well, okay, I did it again. Not necessarily Paul. We're in Hebrews. So, you know, there's, We're just that, gonna go there's, the, there's the great debate. <laughs> the, the author of Hebrews um, says in uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 11, now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Trained by it. And so, and so when talking about liturgy, talking about tradition, you know, the classic teaching of the church up to the traditions that we're starting now, it, it does take discipline. It does. And, and it helps us grow in maturity and in balance in our faith. But all of this to say that it does, it does two other really important things. It connects us on a deeper level with the fellow believers around us, right? Our community of believers. And it also helps us stay within these orthodox boundaries. It does, which is important because it is easy to stray. It L- is. Like the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and keep it. Seal it with thy cords of love. Mm. We can stay sealed, <laughs> By application, meaning Jesus answers that prayer by staying within good tradition. That is one vital tool. Yeah, and and it what's uh, what's really interesting to me about it too is uh, I was I was in one of my classes and we were talking. Uh, I think it was my contemporary theology class, um, and we're, we're um, talking about things with um, Jason Vickers. Awesome class. Oh yeah, and um, and. We were discussing modern day theologians, and he had said that there is a there might be to us there a surprising number of of modern Orthodox Protestant theologians who are leaving the Protestant Church totally and going into the Catholic Church. Yes, and we were sitting there like, why? Like that doesn't make sense to us because a lot of the stuff that they they understand to be true is con is contrary to what the Catholic Church teaches. And the reason for it was that in a lot of our a lot of our modern Protestant churches, there is no orthodox boundaries anymore. That's right. Everything is just loosey goosey, grab what you can, and it's frustrating 
it is frustrating um, to not have those boundaries because we're starting to see just people sway all uh, into idleness all over the place. And what and what what he was what uh, Jason Vickers was saying was that like yeah they they disagree with a lot of this stuff but they but the the thing that the Catholic Church does that that is right the the good thing that they do is they say this is what we believe there it is that you don't have you don't have to guess what the Catholic Church believes on something because they say this is what we believe you walk into any Catholic Church and they say this is what we believe now do some of them deviate sure that's what some that's what people do they deviate from these things but but you're not going to get something different you walk into this united methodist church that i'm at or a united methodist church down the road you're going to get two different things it's very likely you're going to it's the same thing with with the anglican church too you walk into one and you're going to be taught this you're going to walk into the other and you're going to be taught this and that's that's kind of what he was getting at and i was like wow that's really it's really powerful so so in keeping with with tradition we have those boundaries in place, those orthodox boundaries that allow us to to stand firm in what we believe and not fall away. Yeah, and people are deeply attracted to the orthodox faith. Mm-hmm. They are, and it's 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 our opportunity as uh, Christians, not just ministers, but Christians, to share the orthodox faith and its traditions to help people have that anchor and mooring. So that that actually reminds me of. Um, one of the the last general conference that we had in the United Methodist Church, where um, the there was a something brought up, something along the lines of eight out of ten young people don't like tradition or something like I don't remember it exactly, and I was just sitting there thinking like, man, I don't remember being asked, you know, because I'm because as far as our, our definitions go, I'm still considered a young person, in, in the, or at least at the time I was. I think it I think it might go from like. 14 to 30, 32. I don't know how they have their demographics put out. Um, and I remember actually writing something about it on Twitter and I'm trying to go back and find it now. And I don't often write things on Twitter, but I remember saying something like, I don't remember being asked about this, but it, it was, it was saying that people don't really want that. And I don't, I don't believe that to be true. No, they want truth and they want to know, have other people believed it to be true? And again, when you're talking evidence before, um, there is a lot to be said about these saints, the, the the picture that I often come to is that they're just hardened like steel, just good hardened soldiers of the faith that have come before us. And we're going to look at some of those in a moment. Some of those uh, saints that have got the 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 strength to them because they've been practicing and adhering to that orthodox faith and the orthodox, even I should say the the well practiced traditions. Um, so. Now what? We've we've gone through this uh, this period. You've you've endured through another awesome podcast. I'll give myself a high five. How how is it? How can we put tradition in in, in our, our lives? What what's practical about this? Yeah. Um, well, the, 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 before we kind of touch into that, you know. Even if you're if you're struggling or you're not struggling with tradition, these are going to be good practical things. Yes. These are good good applications. So the first thing is, if we're looking at any tradition that's brought up to us, whether it's 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 a new tradition we're starting, or it's a tradition as as in the teaching of the church that's been passed down from generation to generation, 
we've talked about how the authors of some of these things have, have been tested and stood true to, to time, right? But as responsible believers, even in light of that and understanding that, we are still called to challenge it through Scripture. And, and to, to look at some of these classic teachings that we, we see through Origen, Tertullian, and stuff like that, and look at that and say, great, I'm glad that you said that, but let me, let me explore this through Scripture as well. And so the, the, the first thing that we can do that's practical is look at every single tradition, everything that we do through the lens of Scripture. Yes. Yes. And, and, and even if it's not explicitly in there, can we find it by principle? Can we find it as a, a, a character or a nature of God? Mm-hmm. We should be like the, in the book of Acts, it says that they were good Bereans, that when Paul came to them, the apostle Paul came to them, they went and searched the scripture for themselves. Mm-hmm. And it, you, you can do that. That's, yep. you know, through, you have, you have not only your hard Bible, your hard copy Bible, but you can go online. You can yep. begin to Google those things and say, oh, so-and-so is saying this. What is the scriptural premise for Advent? What is the scriptural premise for fasting? What mm-hmm. is the scriptural premise for celebrating uh, Lent? Well, not celebrating Lent, practicing Lent. <laughs> We're going to be coming yeah. into the season of celebration in, in, uh, on Resurrection Sunday. So what does the scripture have to say about that? And, and in keeping with that, as, the, as the, so that being one of the first things that we can do that's practical is looking, searching Scripture, right? Which we're told that, you know, Wesley says that that's a, that's a means of grace, exactly. searching a Scripture. Exactly. But the second thing when we're searching Scripture is to keep in mind those traditions and see how they do or do not contradict Scripture. Yes. So first, find the premise. What started it? Why is it there? And then second, look, for, look to see if there is Scripture that does contradict this tradition. Now remember, Scripture does not contradict Scripture. Scripture helps us interpret Scripture, but we, we always want to use that, again, as a tool, as a lens, to look at the tradition. Yeah, and it, you make adjustments. And that's a big thing. Yeah. That is a big thing is looking at the traditions that maybe we have practiced our entire lives or things that our family has, you know, oh, grandma used to tell us that this is what we do. Then this, and her grandma and her grandma, there could be 10 generations of grandmas that have taught this thing. But if it's a tradition that contradicts scripture, you have to be able to look at that and say, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad this was something that tied our family together to this, but this this can't keep going on. Yeah, you can be gracious about it. Yes. But yep. you you have a, a and we talked about this in one of the episodes. You you now belong to another. You belong to Christ. Mm. And you need to you need to make the stop. You need to make the adjustment. Absolutely. So one of the things you want to do if you're also struggling or you're in this process of learning and hunger about tradition is to talk with other believers who practice the traditions that you see are healthy or are growing great saints and learn what it means to them and why. And 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 that's I mean that you if you're listening to this podcast though you've heard that happen just today where I asked Mike, "Hey, what can you kind of explain briefly the sign of the cross and why you do it?" Because it's a tradition that I'm looking into and Mike practices it as you know as a, as a an Anglican deacon, he he understands it and was able to say, "Hey, here's very really brief and I'm sure we'll have an extensive conversation about this later, but um, but right there, it's being able to do that and say, oh, okay. Or even, you know, in that, you know, in a deeper conversation saying, I, I get that, but can you, but here's where I'm, here's what I'm thinking. And the important thing is through all of these conversations we're having with fellow believers is, is making sure we're maintaining a spirit of truth 
and a spirit of mercy and of grace, of looking at the fruits of the spirit and allowing those to determine how we respond and, and, and having self-control um, and trying to be righteous in how we talk about these things. Yeah. If, if we openly, I mean, you and I, I mean, we're, we're in two different denominations. There are going to be things that we disagree on That's as right. far as tradition, as far as, as interpretation of scripture and so on. But it's okay for us to disagree as long as we do so in a spirit of truthfulness and love and with mercy and with grace. Yeah, that it's an old school word, charity. Yes. Do we have the ability, even if we agree to disagree, can mm-hmm. we be charitable to one another, even if we're not conceding to a point saying, hey, I learned something today. I learned someone else's perspective mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm willing to charitably say, I may disagree with you, but thank you for sharing. Well, and it makes me think of... of Praying to saints, as a as kind of a you know as a tradition of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, I first of all, a lot of people don't fully understand what it is and why it's there, and that's one of the that's a, one of those traditions that I have been looking into a lot recently and trying to understand more. Um, if your immediate response to somebody who who says that they that they um, ask for prayers through saints is to say, well, you're a heretic and and that's it, like into total condemnation and damnation read immediately. Again, we have to kind of step back a little bit, and I think a better thing to say in that is, why do you do it? What, what and probe, say, can can we search the scriptures together for for where this comes from and why and what it means to you? What is your experience and reason in looking at this tradition, but mainly through scripture? Do you, we see how it all ties together. Yeah, and if you're if you can at least sit down with them. And be gracious mm-hmm. and say, hey, can we can we look at this in Scripture? You may not agree, mm-hmm. but you're going to have an opportunity to grow. Mm-hmm. And and through that growth, you're going to have a broadened perspective. Absolutely. And, and that's one of those reasons why trying to discuss theology and figure these things out over Facebook, Twitter, Insta- whatever, is not a good idea. Yeah. It, it, is not it at best idea. can start a conversation, but it is not the meat of the conversation. Right. Absolutely. Like, it says... You know, the idea of truth in love, sometimes it seems like people say truth in love. Like, yeah. you know, it really is truth in love. Like, that's really, and it's really tough. It's a balance that has to be really hardly fought out. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And strived for. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely strive for. So when we're, when, we're, when we're looking here at talking to other believers and we're saying, um, why do you practice it? What does it mean to them? One of the things we want to do on a practical side is begin to give you some resources. Yep. We want to point you back primarily to the ancient church, the patristic fathers. Okay. We want to point you to Origen, to Trullian, Clement of Alexandria, Polycarp, Ignatius, St. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyons. We want to point you back to these uh, church fathers um, and we want to, we want you to begin to ask questions. What were they doing? Yeah. What were they practicing? So, uh, for example, when we were using the practical side of, of one of the questions that came to me early on, um, as I was, uh, really getting serious about discipling my children, I began to ask questions like, oh, so how have they discipled children throughout church history? And what were some of the most tried and true ways that remain scriptural that were used to grow kids in the faith? And so that started me down a journey, started me down the journey of catechism, basically Mm -hmm. this question and answer format that can be done with all ages. Mm -hmm. um, And 
at our house, it, 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 we're a very lively family. So it doesn't mean that my children were sitting there with their hands folded yeah. and uh, prim and proper. It got to be a lot of fun. There was laughter. Sometimes it would be one question at dinner. And then that would provoke a conversation. So it began my journey of how did, how did they um, uh, disciple children? And that started me down that journey because if this is how they've done it, I've got an opportunity to mature and grow in it. Yeah, and and it, and thinking about you know your family, um, you know I've I've gotten to to sit and talk to some of your kids and and to to you and your wife and. One of the things that I heard from them was was saying, yeah, we you know we liked it when Dad was in seminary because he had all these books that we that he would read and discuss with us, and I'm like, and these are your kids that are 10, 11, 12 in that area who are like excited to talk about things that you're learning in seminary, yeah, and the, and it goes to show that that the things that we learn are not again they're not just individual learning points, yes, they're supposed to be for the community. That's why it's important for for your your clergy no matter who they are, even if they don't have an MDiv or a, a master's in theology, to continue the pursuit of knowledge in Christ. Absolutely. It, because it betters the community that they instruct and they teach and they preach to. Um, and I, I, we were chuckling here at each other because we were going through some of the patristic fathers and we were talking, we're like, uh, yeah, let's make sure we bring up Ignatius, but make sure it's the first one and not the second one. And, and neither one of us could remember Ignatius of what? It's Ignatius of Antioch yes, is, Ignatius is who of you Antioch. want to keep in mind. But if you want a good resource that kind of has some of these teachings all bundled together that I've really enjoyed, and it has a huge, I mean, a, a huge collection, um, is a is a collection of, of documents by um, Henry Bettinson, uh, Bettinson, excuse me, and Chris Maunder. And it's a book called The Documents of the Christian Church. Uh, it's one of the books I had to pick up for seminary, and I often find myself going back and, and reading it because it does. It has their their classic teachings and, and writings on certain subjects written down, and you can read it ver, uh, verbatim what they said, um, and it's it's really helpful. It's one of my favorite uh, favorite resources. Yeah, and all of the guys that we mentioned, um, you can find their letters because they wrote letters and they wrote what they were actually doing and practicing. You can Google any of their names, Origen, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Polycarp, Ignatius. Some of these Polycarp, Ignatius examples, um, these were direct disciples of disciples. Mm -hmm. And they were writing down not only what they were learning, but what they were practicing about what they were learning right from the hands of the apostles. Right Now, I'm not saying they're as, as inspired as Holy Scripture, but we go back to what Odin says. They carry a lot of weight. And we want to put that in your hands so that you can gain the maturity of 2,000 years of wisdom and practice that's made awesome saints. Right. And, and, and even in this, in, even in this um, Bettison, Bettinson, why do I always mess that up? In the document of the Christian church, let's call it that, even in that collection, you're also reading not only from patristic fathers, but you're, you're going to be reading things from, from church mothers. Yeah. From, from, from wonderful um, um, female saints and, and, and disciples throughout the ages who have some wonderful things to teach. Um, and, you know, for example, I be, if I remember correctly, St. Teresa of Avila is in there as well. And she's a, you know, a 16th century um, uh, uh, disciple. And, and yeah, it's, it's kind of removed away from the second generation of disciples. But you, you can look at what was taught at the beginning and start looking throughout history and seeing what things have stood the test of time. Yeah. And and you'll see a lot of them in, in the you know, your your um eleventh century and on, 
are referring back to the writings and teachings of the people in the second century. Yeah, there's there's a lot of continuity. It is. It's just the continuation of the faith gets handed down from the, the one spiritual giant to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And so we're, we're hoping to provoke you in hunger yeah. to go and start going, what were some of the ancient traditions of the church? And you name the area. Mm-hmm. How did they do church? How did they disciple one another? How did they raise children? How did singles operate within the church? There is such a rich tradition mm-hmm. that we're hoping to get you hungry to go, if you're thinking about it, and this is one of the things that I've learned, someone in church history has covered it. And even of heresies, mm-hmm. someone in church history has covered it and probably written a paper on it. Gnosticism. Yes. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. one that's one of those that's one of those things that keeps rearing its ugly head. It gets repackaged almost every, in every generation. Yep, every time. Every generation. Uh but but all of this to say that that while we wanna pr- we wanna prompt you to, to look into these things, we also wanna help you understand what we're gonna be coming from. As we continue this podcast and continue to talk about some practical everyday issues that people have and we're wanting to look at those through the lenses of scripture, tradition, reason, experience, we want you as the listener to understand how we understand those lenses. What, how they, they make an, an, an impact. So that's kind of why this trilogy came about is so that you can see how we see scripture and how we understand it, how we look at tradition and how we see it. So that later on in the, in the, you know, down the road, if we're talking about, you know, um, an everyday issue or uh, uh, an excluded middle issue, as we talked about before, and we start talking about tradition and reason and experience, you, you can be like, oh yeah, that's, that's how they saw it. Um, so all of that to say, uh, I think I think Josh, Mike, and I would all agree that we really hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Uh, yeah, and, and it's been a blast, and time has flown by for us. I mean, we're already an hour and thirty minutes into it. Oh wow! Yeah, so we're and, and we're I'm happy that we're we're keeping on on a similar timeline for every episode that we've done, not on purpose. We just write down until we're like, yeah, this looks good. Um, but we do hope that this has been beneficial to you, that it really has prompted something in you. Uh, and we want to encourage you, if you want your friends and family members to to learn about these things, please do share uh, this episode with your friends, Absolutely. with your family members. Um, tell them about it. You can even you can even listen to this and say, man, I really do not like this podcast. But you're more than welcome to share it with people and say, hey, I don't like this podcast, but maybe you will. Or maybe you won't like it either. You know, we're, we're, we're good for all of it because we're just hoping that it, it, you know, we can speak truth to people. Um, but one thing that you can do to really help us out is to just share this podcast with your friends. Um, leave us a review. Uh, leave, leave us a – you can rate it with stars and, and stuff like that. So we just – we want you to be honest. Tell us what you think. And the only way that we're going to be better podcasters and, and, and people all around is if we have good um, constructive criticism. So don't be afraid to send us an email or even write it on Facebook and say, hey, I love what you guys do, but you could probably do it this way or do it that way. And we might say, that's a great suggestion. Or we might say, no, but thank you. And that's okay. That's why, that's why, we're, that's why we're here and doing it in a public forum. And if you want to drop us a note of encouragement. Yes, please do. <laughs> we'll take those as well. Yes. And, Af- and affirmation please, is a good thing. One of the ways that we get the message out to more people, I know you hear it a million times, but please like and subscribe. Yep, absolutely. Um, that, that puts us up with the bots, uh, the robots and, and all the analytics and gets, our, and gets the message out. And we're trying to reach as many people as we can in practical priesthood because Jesus loves his people. Yep. And we want to be a part of helping shepherd 
in, uh, in, 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 a, in a teaching format um, uh, and getting conversation started for, for Jesus. So please like and subscribe and share the episodes. It really does help. Absolutely. But we do thank you all for, for joining us on this episode. Uh, and we look forward to coming back to you in two weeks as we talk about reason and experience. God bless.